This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. We record this interview around the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor and the American entry into World War II. And the exact day where we're recording this, December 12th, is also the 80th anniversary of Japanese troops landing on the Philippine island of Luzon. Thus begins the four-year war over the Philippines, the surrender of American forces on May 8, 1942, the invasion of Leyte by MacArthur on October 20, 1944, and the surrender of Japan on August 15, 1945. But what happens in between these major dates? How did Filipinos live their lives under the occupation, and how did some choose to fight back? What did resistance, whether carried out by Americans who stayed behind or Filipinos seizing their country's future for themselves, look like? War is in the Philippines, 42 to 44, by James Kelly Morningstar, is one of the first attempts to repair our understanding of war in the Philippines, showing how American, Filipino, and Japanese actions influenced each other. James Kelly Morningstar is a retired U.S. Army armor officer and decorated combat veteran with degrees from West Point and Kansas State University, a master's degree from Georgetown University, and a Ph.D. from the University of Maryland. He currently teaches military history at Georgetown. He is also the author of Patton's Way, A Radical Theory of War. Today, we talk about the Philippines, the Japanese invasion and occupation, the nature of resistance, and American grand strategy. Let's talk about what makes the Philippine resistance movement important to our understanding of today's geopolitics. So, James, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's maybe set the scene. On the eve of the Japanese invasion, what's the U.S. presence in the Philippines like? Well, it's surprising how few Americans were actually in the Philippines. Out of a population of about 14 million, there were just under 7,000 American civilians. There's about another 10,000 uh, military personnel on the islands. Compare that to 20,000 Japanese civilians on the islands and 100,000 plus Spanish civilians. You know, the, um, the United States was mainly connected to the Philippines because of trade. You know, the uh, trade, U.S. goods were made up 9% of Philippine imports at the end of the Spanish-American War and uh, were 83% of all Filipino inputs by about 1933. The um, United States also proved to be a very uh, reluctant imperialist power. They had virtually guaranteed independence to the Philippines early on, reaffirmed that during World War I with the Jones Act, then uh, throughout the 30s, and finally the Tidings-McDuffie Act in 1934. But they had, they had promised the Filipinos independence after a 10-year period in which to practice self-government and to build their defenses. So they expected to grant full independence by 1945. And then, of course, you know, the, the war is going to interfere with that. I'd say that defensively, um, because of Japanese aggression in China, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had um, started to put pressure on Japan economically, froze their assets on 25 July, 
they call he called in uh, a recall to duty Douglas MacArthur, who had been retired from the U.S. military and been um, uh, uh, the generalissimo, the field marshal in charge of all Filipino forces. MacArthur's job was to build the defensive forces for President Quezon and the new Philippines. And he expected to have that done by 1945. So he's about halfway through his efforts to build a defense when uh, the war starts approaching. When they recalled him, they put him in charge of uh, the, the American forces in the, in the Philippines. That meant taking the one American division that was there and augmenting it with a call-up of nine Filipino reserve divisions, 120,000 troops. MacArthur planned on doing that on three phases. The first three regiments of each division would become the would be caught up on the 1st of September. The second three would come up on the end of October. The last three on 15 December. And of course, we know what happens before 15 December. He didn't have the equipment for these divisions. He didn't have the trainers for these divisions. He didn't have logistics facilities for these divisions. So what he planned on doing was, and what he was in the midst of doing, was he basically uh, stood down the one American division and loaned their equipment out for training, loaned their officers out to be the trainers, and was trying to create a new army from scratch. So the invasion in December will interrupt that process. And that'll mean that at least two thirds of each reserve division is barely trained. And when they did have training, they only had about five bullets per man for, for you know, uh, for um, their marksmanship training. They had uh, hardly any uh, time training with machine guns. They were short 98% of all radios. They expected all this was going to come before the Japanese arrived. MacArthur didn't expect the Japanese to actually attack until maybe mid-1942. And this is one reason, knowing this and knowing the buildup, is one reason why the Japanese accelerated their timeline and actually attacked in early December. So there's a lot there that kind of links into several questions that I have written down. Um, but maybe let's start with MacArthur. Um, how important is he to the resistance effort, you know, both as a commander in the Philippines and then when he um, goes to Australia, but also as a symbol as shown, you know, by his I shall return statement? There, there's two sides of this, and I find it very interesting because when I started this project, I thought MacArthur had been the force in organizing the guerrillas, but he's not initially. It's very much an organic movement by the Filipino people. And I think this gets lost in the popular memory. The, um, when MacArthur leaves in March, um, he goes to, to Australia expecting to meet an army down there that was rising up and being trained by the Allies to, uh, to re-enter the Philippines. Of course, he finds there's no army there. The guys on Bataan and Corregidor hang on through April, then May, before finally surrendering. From that time that, that Corregidor falls in early May until early 40, late 42, early 43, MacArthur has no idea what's happening in the Philippines. There's no communication. And then gradually he starts getting radio contacts from different groups, civilians, uh, some Filipino army officers, uh, a few Americans who are able to get radios. He can't be sure if those are real uh, guerrillas, if they're reliable, if they're Japanese pretending to be guerrillas. And so there's a, there's a long process to try to identify who these people are. And he winds up sending in uh, agents. First, uh, a nine-man Filipino team 
led by Jesus Villamor, the Negros in January of 43. And then later, more and more agents to go in to meet with these guerrillas, verify if they're real or if they're reliable. And then he starts working supplies in. At that point, there's already guerrilla units across the islands. And it's interesting, too, that many of these guerrilla groups, the Filipino guerrilla groups, um, have to decide whether or not to invite American refugee soldiers, people who refuse to surrender or who escaped capture, whether or not to invite them into their units or to keep them out. Some will invite them in, and there's good reasons for that. Uh, they recognize, number one, the American soldiers, you know, they're, they're professional soldiers. They know how to fight. So there's some skill there. They also recognize that um, in many cases, the Filipinos are divided by you know, pre-war politics or divided by uh, pre-war societal divisions, you know, and they refuse to operate together, but they all can unite against the, some neutral outsider. And that's what the Americans represent. So they bring unity to a lot of the guerrilla groups. The third thing is many of the Filipinos, right? We knew that if we had an American, then we had a chance for support from MacArthur. And this reflects your question because they believed MacArthur was coming back. You know, they, when MacArthur gave his promise that I shall return, uh, there's a lot of historians who poo-poo that statement as being some sort of grandiose, uh, you know, self-inflation. Uh, when in fact, saying I shall return registered with Filipinos because if he just said America shall return, they might not have believed it. America had already let them down. Franklin Delano Roosevelt already let them down. But when MacArthur said, I shall return, they were willing to trust him, his word. And so um, there are instances where some of the guerrillas say that, you know, um, MacArthur's statement um, really registered. Ed Ramsey wrote that in 1943, MacArthur's name was like an invocation to them, a holy word that had special power and meaning. None of them doubted his promise to return, but they all were anxious to learn when the invasion would come. And that's repeated, that sentiment is repeated by observers, the, the Filipinos themselves and the Americans throughout Japanese occupation. So I think uh, MacArthur, um, his promise to return was very important to keeping the flame of resistance alive. But moreover, his determination to return helped to mold and shape the, the support and reinforcement of the uh, the Filipino guerrillas, and you you mentioned something about the um, about Americans joining guerrilla groups, the Americans being useful in some capacity as leaders of these guerrilla groups to get support or overcome internal divisions. Um, but you also kind of note that there were tensions between, say, American commanders and Filipino subordinates. Um, obviously, there were Filipino groups that probably decided to not include Americans. Um, could you get into more details about kind of how the relationship between I guess, commanders and subordinates really worked um, within these groups. Yeah, um, there were divisions uh, in Filipino and American uh, guerrillas, uh, no doubt about it. Um, the relations between the Americans and the Filipinos in particular, um, you've got an example like uh, uh, Macario Peralta. He was a guerrilla leader on Panay. He was uh, the G3 in the 61st Division. It's one of the reserve divisions was called up that were defending the island before they were ordered to surrender. When the American commander was ordered to surrender, he, he felt duty bound to surrender with all his American officers. But he told his Filipino reservists, you guys are free. You can head for the hills. You can keep fighting. You, you can surrender, whatever you decide. 
And so Peralta and other officers decide to go to the hills and, and raise gorillas. And um, he was, you know, from an elite family in Manila, later on become a uh, Supreme Court uh, justice. But he was determined, he saw this opportunity that resisting the Japanese would prove the worthiness of the Filipinos for independence. And he didn't want to undermine it. He didn't want to risk it by bringing Americans in to lead his effort. So Americans who went to his island or were in his vicinity, he would welcome them in, he would take care of them, but he put them on the sidelines. They weren't involved in fighting for you know, his guerrilla group. Um, others, though, would, would bring the Americans in and incorporate them all kinds of ways, either from augmenting their, their units or you know, being in leadership positions. And, and uh, a lot of them were very prominent. But even outside the Philippine-American relation, uh, there were divisions among Filipinos. In southern Luzon, um, Ernesto Mata, uh, Montana Zabat, Salvador Escudero, and others fought each other almost as much as they fought the Americans. Now, they were in southern Luzon, which MacArthur had left completely empty because he was concentrating his forces in the north and then in Bataan. So there's a power vacuum in the south when the Japanese came in. And these guys raised up and started fighting against the Japanese, but they had to compete. They had to compete for resources. They had to compete for recruits. They had to compete for uh, support among the locals. And they had different positions where they believed who should have the right to command. So throughout the, the entire occupation, uh, there, was, there was no unity among those units down there. In other cases, there were, there were instances where pre-war politics and other divisions kept the, the guerrillas separated. Um, in Western Leyte, for example, the uh, Hacienderos, the, the, the elites down there, didn't trust some of the guerrilla leaders because they saw them as social revolutionaries. And uh, that, that attitude kept them divided during the fighting of the war. Um, one of the most famous, of course, was on Cebu. There's um, an American leader named Fenton who had an uh, aide named Ramon Durano. And uh, Durano, uh, Fenton authorized in 19... 42 in about six month period, he uh, uh, authorized more than 60 executions of Filipinos. And after the war, some studies indicate that Durano was using those executions to eliminate his pre-war political rivals who uh, defeated him for uh, the, the first district congressional elections. So you see a lot of these divisions for different reasons, social, political, uh, national, uh, throughout the islands during the war. What's interesting to me is that as MacArthur was starting to bring the aid in, the submarines, to bring in uh, tons and tons of supplies, his agents would go forward through the Philippines and identify who was reliable. Now, reliable meaning who could fight, who was capable, uh, who was in position to, to you know, do things, who was loyal to follow orders from MacArthur. And in that event, what he wanted was he wanted to support the people who were going to allow Quezon or his successors to come back into the Philippines, not establish a new form of government. So MacArthur does a couple of things. He gets aid to, to the reliable, generally people who will support the return of the elites. Secondly, he uses the aid to isolate non-reliables like the Hukbalahaps, the communists in northern Luzon. The third thing he does is he 
changes the methodology used by guerrillas. He tells them, don't just attack the Japanese for the sake of attacking the Japanese, because you're going to bring reprisals back on the people in your areas. He said, I want you to spend more time doing reconnaissance, providing intelligence, these kind of things to help me organize my return to the Philippines. Now, for a lot of guerrillas, that was unacceptable because they believed the only way to keep the people support was to demonstrate that they were fighting for the people. And so MacArthur had to basically work around that desire by the guerrillas to keep fighting the war and reinforce the guerrillas who were willing to accept his orders. That's a, that was a tricky thing. But the divisions helped him decide who to support, who not to support. So what was life actually like for a for for a guerrilla fighter, I mean, you you include all these details in your book, including one that I particularly liked, which was, um, uh, what is it? They would they would they would bury coconuts and let them ferment to become alcohol, yeah. and then they would ferment them even more and use them as gasoline. Except then they had a problem of people siphoning the gasoline <laughs> to then yeah. to then drink. Um, but but I guess like so, so, your book includes so many kind of great details about actually what life was like as a as a guerrilla. I wonder if you might kind of get into some of that. Yeah, that's um. Imagine if you're, you know, a refugee American or a Filipino decides to take up arms, and you have to move into the non-occupied areas. One of the things that the Japanese occupation strategy decided to do was take about the twelve major cities in the Philippines and occupy those. But in in doing that, they left unoccupied a lot of jungle areas. So that's where the guerrillas want to live. Now you arrive out in the jungle with whatever you're carrying in your pockets, and think about it. You've got to survive. You got to find food. You got to find arms, ammunition. You've got to get people organized. Uh, it's amazing. And the more I went through studying the uh, records of the Filipino guerrillas, I realized, you know, it was just about as hard to fight the jungle as it was to fight the Japanese. You know, the, the dampness and humidity ate away their clothes and any kind of equipment they had. The nights were so dark that a lot of men went mad and there was this nonstop cacophony of all the insects and, and animals around you. Um, the, the leeches and the rattan thorns in the environment would, you know, cut people. And then those wounds with the humidity and all wouldn't heal. They grow larger. And they'd say that you could see these tropical ulcers forming and you could see your bones. The, um, the, and lacking the medicine to cure those, lacking the medicine to fight off disease. Malaria, yellow fever, berry, berry, dysentery, all these things causing you know, paralyzing shivers and bouts of fever and uh, dehydration, uh, affecting your nerves and your muscles, causing uh, heart failure. The fatigue from the disease was a huge factor, you know, complicated by the uh, diets, especially for the Americans. I said the average American lost 40% of his body weight. And uh, after a couple of years, most of them were under 100 pounds. And here they are trying to do the most strenuous kind of warfare, you know, in these debilitating conditions. And what happens is, interesting to me, was that the first generation leaders of the guerrillas are not there when the Americans come back. Most of them either died or uh, were so worn down, they surrendered and then were executed. And so a second generation, guys who were sick at the beginning, like Volkman and others, they wind up leading the guerrillas at the end because they had time to recover. But even then, most of the uh, survivors spent right, went right to the hospitals when uh, the Americans arrived because they were still so worn out. 
you know, the uh, the weapons. They scrounged up guns from battlefields. Uh, you know, the uh, the Filipino hunters, the RTC units. They they raided armories and got Japanese weapons. They're, even if you had a gun, where do you get the bullets? Where do you get the ammunition? They're, those kind of things they were fighting all the time. There were guerrilla leaders who lost eyes, who broke arms, and then they were never set properly, so they didn't heal properly for the whole war. Uh, all these things that they had to deal with day in, day out were um, were such that add to that the psychological pressure of having the Japanese searching for you all the time. Add to that the uh, the pressure of not knowing who you can trust, who's going to betray you. You know, uh, the Japanese were very good at finding who's in the guerrillas, getting their families, threatening to kill or execute their families to, to make them flip and tell on somebody at some location. All these things were weighing down these guys. When I read Wendell Furtick's diary, he was one of the guerrilla leaders on Mindanao. His diaries at the, uh, at the war college uh, up in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I read through his entire diary and there's a real heart of darkness aspect to it, you know, where he becomes very paranoid and you can tell he's exhausted. And all the, these psychological factors are weighing on these men throughout this, this period. And it, it compounds their vulnerability to fatigue and malaise and uh, disease. So the, the environment itself is a huge factor in the story. So we've talked a lot about the Americans, the Filipino guerrillas, but I want to move on to talk about kind of wider Philippine society. I mean, not every Philippine, like not every Filipino joined uh, the, the guerrilla movements, not every Filipino joined the resistance. And how did ordinary Filipinos try to get by under the Japanese occupation? Yeah, I, uh, I, I tried to do a lot of research in that area to find out. I, also, you know, for the, the Japanese point of view, too. Mm -hmm. But um, the struggle of the average Filipino is startling, especially in areas like Manila, which was one of the most damaged cities in the entire war. 100,000 Filipinos may have died during this war, during this occupation. Um, I, I focus on you know a lot of their, their memories, like uh, Lita Yumol, who was a nine-year-old uh, daughter of a Manila attorney. And you know the, the perspective of a little girl asking her parents what this is about, why is this happening? The, um, the, the people in the countrysides who had no place to go. You know, when the Japanese came through, they were still staying on their, their, their bamboo huts and stilts, you know, and, and trying to work their, their rice fields. The uh, tribal people like the uh, Negritos, you know, um, the, these, um, these are people who, like uh, Thoreau said, you know, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And they're caught in this clash between these two superpowers that are going on. And they're trying to live their lives. Uh, some of them are going to be caught up in, uh, in uh, collaboration with the Japanese and for lots of different reasons. Some of them are going to try to avoid the Japanese and stay in hiding, which is some areas turns out to be almost impossible. They, um, they try to get through their lives, but they get interfered with, with things like when the Japanese invaded, they, they, cut off 85% of all imports to the, to the Philippines. They cut off almost 87% of all taxes being collected, you know, because the 1% of Westerners on the islands paid that much of the taxes. Uh, they tried to control the economy and they wound up trying to freeze prices, which creates a huge black market. They, uh, in the cities, the, uh, the, the 
Japanese effort to get uh, comfort women for their so soldiers' brothels, you know, really disrupts society, affects the morals of society. Uh, people learn not to trust their neighbors because the spy networks set up by the Japanese are everywhere. So you take a people who are, you know, very moral, very devout, uh, and you put them in an environment where they're forced to protect their children, to protect their loved ones. They have to lie. They have to deceive. They have to conceal. And this is a, a traumatic experience for society, but it affects almost everybody. Little things that you wouldn't consider, like in um, in major cities, the Japanese confiscate all the all the vehicles. There's shortages of gasoline. There's shortages of food. Famine breaks out several times that you know really hurts people. And the average person has to, whether or not they want to get involved, they have to survive in this. And then you have there's a factor in Filipino society, and it, it deals with what one sociologists called the kinship networks, which are like clans. Um, you're, the history of the islands, so divided, you know, 7,000 plus islands, so many different ethnic groups and peoples that the real strands of loyalty pre-war were the families. And when your family, somebody in your family is beaten or attacked by the Japanese, the whole family then is allied against that attacker. And so the Japanese coming in would try to dominate the people as a means of keeping them oppressed, keeping them uh, in line. And the instances where they attack or get physically abusive radiate through the whole kinship network and bring those people against them. So even if you as an individual try to stay on the sidelines and, and mind your own business, there's many, many factors that are going to make your life miserable that are going to uh, cause you to, you know, work your loyalties in one specific direction and uh, bring you into the war, whether you like it or not. And that's the problem that most Filipinos had to deal with. So maybe kind of finally shifting to, to the occupiers, the Japanese and the Japanese are trying to visit themselves as an anti-colonial power. Um, they keep on trying to play up in their, in their messaging, the propaganda about how, you know, the Philippines, will be an independent nation, obviously within the greater co-prosperity sphere. Um, very much the Japanese will help guide the Philippines to an independent anti-colonial stance. Um, I guess kind of in, in reality, how much traction did that messaging actually get in the Philippines? They definitely make a huge effort. The billboards and the radio broadcasts and things. But I think one of the most telling um, touchstones on this issue is the experience of what was called the Hitomi Propaganda Platoon, which I talk about in my book. And it was led by, a, uh, I think it was a 25-year-old lieutenant named Jinsuke Hitomi. He's in the field trying to convince the Filipino people to uh, you know, join in with the greater prosperity sphere, to join in with the Japanese. And they started out to tell you know, the Filipinos, you are not white, you are like us, we are brothers, we are here to liberate the countries, et cetera. And he says, you know, he, he wasn't getting much traction on that. And there's a famous story he tells where he's in the field one time. They've gathered up all the locals. And uh, he has a guy giving a speech in the local dialect. And um, there's an interpreter there. There's a, 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 a very um, le leader in the propaganda movement in Japan comes there to give the speech. And the interpreter is interpreting it to the local people. And there's no reaction. 
the guy's giving this, you know, the brotherhood speech, the uh, anti-colonial speech, et cetera, no reaction from the people. Then suddenly the people start warming up and they start, you know, applauding and cheering. And this, the Japanese man's thinking, I'm doing a great job here. They're really buying into this. But another person who spoke both languages tells Hitomi what really happened. He said, the interpreter started out saying exactly what the propagandists wanted him to say. But when he realized the locals weren't responding, he changed tactics. So no matter what the man was saying, the interpreter told him a story about when he personally was in Japan. He saw a guy who dropped his wallet and a Japanese man found the wallet and ran around the airport looking for who owns this wallet, you know, and make sure he got the wallet back. And the people loved that story. And the interpreter said, you see, so my opinion is uh, we give them a chance. They're, they're pretty trustworthy people as individuals and uh, let's give them a chance. And everybody applauded. And Hitomi realized that he had to change tactics. It's trying to sell, instead of trying to sell the people, the brotherhood and the greater East uh, Asia co-prosperity sphere uh, spiel, he changed to say, look, this is a war between the Japanese and the Americans. If you guys just stay on the sidelines, you won't get hurt. And that he had more success with that than anything else. And I think that that uh, is, is true for a lot of what the Japanese are trying to decide. Their methodology of trying to uh, intimidate the population backfired repeatedly. You know, they did things like print, uh, outlining two feet in front of uh, government buildings and making everybody pass by, stand on those two outlined feet and bow to the guards. They would slap any Filipinos who got out of line or gave them an insult or anything else. You know, and that was the least of things. The, the killing, the tortures, the rapes, the beatings, uh, all those things that went on, the stories just shot across society in the Philippines and uh, brought no matter. So no matter what kind of message the propagandists are trying to sell, the reality is what registered with the average Filipino and uh, the insults, even things like the damage done on the, during the invasion, the Japanese never fixed. There's a water plant in one city that was damaged, never bothered to fix it. So the people suffered for that, that indifference, radiated among the people. Um, the efforts to try to change the church was a huge issue because they saw nuns being thrown in prison. They saw the uh, church buildings being blown up. And those things erase any kind of brotherhood message that is, that is trying to be transmitted at the same time. So, I think we we can't escape the fact that the Philippines was an American colony. Um, even even if the status was changing over time before the before the invasion, even if America's was called a kind of more um, hands off, more reluctant imperial power, it was still an imperial power. Um, there were clearly tensions between the Philippines and the United States, you know, especially around independence before the Japanese invasion. And I just kind of want to ask the question: kind of how did American imperialism, how did it acting, it being this colonial power, how did that kind of influence the Filipino resistance movement? You've kind of hinted at it here and there with things like as a chance to prove themselves for independence. But I just kind of wanted to kind of make sure I asked the question about the role that American America as a colonial power played in the development of this conflict. Yeah, there's, um, there's no doubt about it. I think to me, it was kind of like a shadow that lurked behind all of the actions that are going on. And I'll, I'll give you one 
one case early on, uh, 28 December 1941, Franklin Roosevelt gives a radio speech from the United States for the Philippines in which he says, you know, expect everybody to do their duty, et cetera. But he promises that the Philipp Philippine freedom will be redeemed. And the people in the Philippines heard that and they went, what, what do you mean be redeemed? You know, we're not going to keep it. We're, we've already lost it and you're going to redeem it later. And there's a lot of people, this was, you had promised that the aid was coming, some, you know, thousand mile convoy of ships was coming. And now you're saying it's going to be redeemed. When President Kazan heard that, he turns to um, MacArthur's intelligence officer, uh, uh, Colonel Willoughby. And he said, this is the president of the Philippines saying, for 30 years, I have worked and hoped for my people. Now they burn and die for a flag that cannot protect them. By God and all the saints, I cannot stand this constant reference to England, to Europe. I am here and my people are here under the heels of a conqueror. Where are the plains this shameless man is boasting of? How America is to writhe in anguish, anguish at the fate of a distant cousin while a daughter is being raped in the back room. So right, right below the surface, when they feel like they're being betrayed by America, America's not honoring this protectorate they promised, then immediately it's like resentment. There's anger. And um, you see that every now and then. And, and there's no doubt there are uh, a number of the Americans, uh, guerrillas, uh, officers, et cetera, that have racist attitudes toward the Filipinos. And that racism is, is hand in hand with the idea of imperialism or colonialism. But there's also an element where when you read the memoirs of the successful guerrilla leaders, almost all of them have a moment when they go, you know, I was here doing my job, but now I realize the sacrifice the Filipino people are making and their cause is now my cause, you know, and they, they the really successful guerrilla leaders wind up losing any kind of trace of imperialist attitude. And they truly become brothers with the guys they're in the field with arm in arm with. And uh, I think that's a fascinating aspect of the, of the whole guerrilla struggle, you know, and at the end of the war too, talk about imperialism. When the war is over with, there are a number of American guerrilla leaders who think that they should have a place in the new Filipino government and the new Filipino armor or army. And they find out that, no, there's no room for you. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate everything you did, but now you have to go because now this is a Filipino nation. The war itself becomes what is, uh, we call you know, an expression of agency, true agency by the Filipino people in which they establish their right to an independent nationhood. And they're not going to be denied that. And the Americans are, can be friends, they can be trade partners, but they're not going to be there running that government or involved in it. And that's, that's the way the uh, war ended. So let's talk about how the war ended. Um, so eventually, you know, the Americans invade the, invade the Philippines. Um, you get into kind of the back and forth in Washington about whether or not America was even going to do that. Um, but the United States, MacArthur finally returns to the Philippines. What role does the resistance play in the American invasion of the Philippines? A huge role, and one that I did not appreciate when I first started writing this, one that's pretty much ignored in the official U.S. Army histories. But the, uh, they not only kept the spirit of resistance alive during the occupation, but when MacArthur came back, the guerrillas were involved in what we call today precursor operations. Those are you know, surveillance of targets, 
sabotage, disruption of the enemy, uh, diversionary attacks, etc., that all uh, aid and abet the invasion. Then when the invaders got ashore, they, the guerrillas met them and were scouts and guides, which was huge because uh, I've read, you know, U.S. Army accounts where they say, well, we had great success getting from point A to point B, you know, and, and maneuvering against the Japanese. That was because there were Filipino guerrillas leading them on the best paths, telling them where the enemy was and how to get around them. The, the, the guerrillas provided civil operations, you know, where they were the link between the, the local people and the, these invaders coming in including non-combatant evacuation operations, NEO operations, we call them today. They rescued, um, you know, the political leaders' families from, from being held as hostages by the Japanese. They provided flank security for the forces as they're moving out. They provided independent deep operations behind Japanese lines. They also, they built airfields, ran airfields for the uh, refueling and the resupply of aircraft so they could have linger time, loiter time over top of the Japanese lines. They also recovered a number of downed pilots. And then some of the units were given artillery and aircraft controller teams and fought as regular army units in the field. And some of those then were transitioned into regular army units for the new Filipino army. So I think that their contribution to the success of the invasion is, is just hard to, um, to ignore. It's, it was really an essential essential combat multiplier for MacArthur's operations. So I have one question, one, one more question, and, it, and it's a big one. Um, why is it important to remember the resistance movement in the Philippines, both in the context of the Philippines um, and its development, but also kind of in the history and our understanding of the wider region? Well, there's several different answers for this. One was how it shaped the Filipino politics, you know, for decades to come. And MacArthur brings back Quezon, his exiled government. Um, Sergio Osmayana becomes new uh, president of the Philippines. And then it's, that's followed by uh, Manuel Rojas, who was a liberal party, but was MacArthur's uh, agent in the field. Um, then you have, uh, you know, various guerrilla leaders coming into power all the way through uh, Corazon Aquino, who was, uh, you know, Benigno Aquino was a big player in the occupation. Um, second reason why it's important to remember is because of the damage done and the sacrifices made by the Filipinos themselves, you know, the, um, the damage done to them in places like Manila, the destruction of the city and, and the, 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 the vast number of people who are injured or left homeless or killed or maimed in the, uh, in the fighting all for their independence, really. I mean, this is, this is, in my mind, equivalent to the American Revolution, you know, occurring at the same time. But the last thing is, I kept coming across stories of sacrifice that were just, just heart-rendering. One of them, I'll give you an example, uh, Mariano Villafuerte. This is the man who introduced the Boy Scouts into the Philippines. He was, by all accounts, just a great individual. He's assemblyman around uh, Naga, the uh, provincial capital in Luzon, when the Japanese attacked. The governor went into hiding. And Villaforte sees that there's no police going on. There's no government. He goes to find the governor and says, you need to come back out and run this government until the Japanese get here at least. And the governor wouldn't do it, but he appointed Villaforte to act in his place. So he goes back. He rallies the police. He gets the government working. He gets people paid. When the Japanese come in, they, uh, they use him as a, a point of contact for negotiating with the locals there and setting up an occupation government. 
April 42, guerrillas start attacking around Naga. And it turns into a major attack. Uh, it turns into a siege. The Japanese hold Villa Forte, his children, and his pregnant wife as hostages. Then um, during the attack, after several days, his wife begins hemorrhaging. Villa Forte asked him, said, release us to the guerrillas. And the Japanese refused. On 3 May, a Japanese squad of soldiers broke out through the guerrilla lines and dragged Villaforte, his wife, and his oldest son with them, keeping them as shields and hostages. They get on a fishing boat. They go out to sea. Villaforte's wife starts hemorrhaging again. So they take him ashore, and when they arrive at shore, they, they wind up walking right into what's called a Santa Cruzan ritual, a big ceremony going on. And that ceremony was attended by uh, a guerrilla's wife, Elias Madrid's wife and family. The Japanese soldiers come into this big celebration. They fire into the air to apparently scare away the people. The guerrillas in the crowd fire back and a big firefight ensues. Then around midnight, Elias Madrid arrives with his guerrillas in a boat. They charge in to find his wife. The, the Japanese then jump out and grab Elias's boat and, and uh, sail away. But they left Villaforte, his wife and his child behind. So what happens to them? The guerrillas capture them and behead them stick their heads on spikes. Now, that story to me, you know, it just encapsulates so much of what was happening here. People, like you were talking about, the, the average Filipino caught in the middle trying to do the right things in a very tough situation, winds up in a situation that cost him, his pregnant wife, and his oldest son their lives, and at the hands of other guerrillas, you know, of, of the guerrillas, who didn't really know who they were. And so these kind of stories, these sacrifices by individuals, these tragedies, this example of the human condition, you know, should never be forgotten. And in, in my book, you know, I tried to, for the first time to stitch together um, the entire story of this, of this period, uh, the Americans, the Filipinos, the Japanese points of view the story across the islands of as many guerrilla groups as I could, as I could get and do it all in about 400 pages. And I admit, I say in my, uh, in my introduction that um, no one book can capture this experience, you know, this whole narrative, but I hope to jumpstart more conversation about it and try to bring this more to, to popular memory. Well, if I might say, I think, I think your book did a really great job at that. I definitely learned a lot from reading it. Um, and so with that, thank you for listening to our interview with James Kelly Morningstar, author of War and Resistance in the Philippines, 1942 to 1944. James, I actually have one question, one more question for you, sure. which is uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Um, well, you can find my books on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and all the other uh, uh, websites. Um, what I'm doing right now, I'm still teaching and I'm writing, I'm in some writing my next book, which is basically going to be a uh, history of the American army. I call it, uh, right now, it's called America and Her Army. And um, I'm trying to analyze the relationship between society and the military. And uh, so, in essence, it's, it's boiling down to the Clausewitzian trinity of the people, the government, and the military. How the people have to support the military and how they support the military with, with money, and with individual volunteers in this democracy, how the military changes society. You know, the things we do to support the military uh, give rise to things like taxes and the draft 
and which changed the fundamental nature of American society. And I try to follow that through from pre-revolution all the way to modern day. So it's been quite a uh, adventure and I have far more pages written than I'm going to be allowed to publish. So I have to do a lot of editing. That's always the problem, isn't it? Yes, um, it is. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, the Asian Review Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Albert Samaha, author of Concepcion and Immigrant Families' Fortunes. Um, Helen Lee will again be joining us as a guest host for that interview. But before then, thank you so much, James, for joining me today. My pleasure.